I knew I would forget something, and I forgot the, the bowl. I, it's, sorry, Bill. Um, <laughs> so I did. Thank you. Yes, angry bees. I know, I was like, who let them out? No, I'm just kidding. Thank you for being here. It's good to see you all. Um, I know we normally like to honor silence with our eyes closed, but I have a different invitation today. And it's to, I'll speak, but if you all honor silence with your eyes wide open in this way, if you want to plant your feet on the ground, if you want to put your hands in your lap in whatever way is comfortable, however is comfortable to you. But instead of eyes down or closed, look around you. Look and see who is here and who isn't here. Notice the way the light is coming in the room. <laughs> Wave. <laughs> Notice someone you don't know very well, or maybe someone you know really well. And say these words in your mind or whisper them. It's sawubona. It means I see you. You knew that, John? <laughs> More than politeness, sawubona is a, is a Zulu greeting. It's a way of saying, I see the whole of you, your experiences, your passions, your pain, your strengths, your weaknesses, your present, and your future. You are valuable. You are worthwhile. So let's bring our full, whole selves into this space. And again, Saubona. If I had a bell, I'd ring it. I don't. <laughs> I'd like to also bring Bill into this space, and before I do, I will just say he is feeling better and have been in some kind of contact with him each day this week. Um, he and Cherry both tested positive for COVID, and, but they are doing better. I think had a bad day and have progressively gotten fewer symptoms and are just tired. And I know when our family had it, we all felt like rocks. Like, there's that water there, but I can't quite get it. So I think that fatigue is real. Um, but the good news is I think they're on the upswing. But to honor Bill in this space, grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. Grace be in our end and at our departing. And of course, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So thanks for being here. So Bill's been on this theme, and we were planning, we had a more or less talk planned out today. Um, so I'm not doing his part, but I'll channel some of what we had talked about. He's been, of course, on this theme of awareness, which is sorely needed right now. We need people who are intentionally awakening and committing to consciousness and repairing as we do so. 
there's a hope that as we awaken internally that we also turn outward toward the world's needs. There's a writer who, her name is Shelley Takluck, who writes about justice as a spiritual practice. And she suggests that part of our meditation can be, what is needed from me in order for others to be free? We can sit with that question daily and something new would come up daily. What is needed from me in order for others to be free? Uh, we've also talked about this definition of God from Carl Jung. And I love this quote so much. To this day, God is the name by which I designate all things which cross my willful path, violent and recklessly, all things which upset my subjective views, plans, and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or for worse. My takeaway in there is all things. If you take this view, uh, concepts of gods are not intended to placate us, but to disrupt us, to change us, to transform us. Similarly, any kind of psycho-spiritual undertaking that we commit to, that wholeness is contingent on our ability to be with both and the pain and the joy. A couple of weeks ago, Bill mentioned that Jim Bankston challenged people in a, a sermon to keep a hope journal, to write down the things that make you feel hopeful on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of like a gratitude journal. Part of it, though, is also knowing what we feel hopeless about. We can't name hope unless we can also name what we feel hopeless about. They are two sides of the same coin. I'll confess I haven't done it. <laughs> I have not kept a hope journal lately, and this last week has felt rather bleak again with another school shooting of elementary school shoot, uh, children. These are babies. I remember I was thinking about Sandy Hook in 2012 this week, of course. I think many of us were. It's a terrible sign that our country does not care about gun control when we're allowing babies to be killed and not changing policies. Everyone is someone's baby, though. And I remembered that George Floyd, when he was killed, cried out for his mother. Everybody is someone's baby. So how do we live with this pain and choose hope anyway? I want to give a wide berth to any of us who are feeling hopeless right now, but I'll offer that I think defiant hope is also the resurrection on the other side of that. And this is the season of death and rebirth, of death and resurrection, of dark and light. We live in this beautiful, terrible world. We were planning in some way to talk about the shadow archetype that rules us, which is our addiction to violence. We seem to gravitate toward it, which also means that we have to work with it. We have to figure it out. We have to find the shadow in ourselves. It's an eye for an eye world that we live in. Um, after Sandy Hook, I just said, um, Roddy, are you counting? No. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> when I first, I think one of the first times I spoke in here, Roddy said, great job, and you need to work on your ums. <laughs> oh shoot, now I alerted everyone to it, so I'm gonna get dinged today. 
<laughs> I just did. Um, <laughs> Lord have mercy. Uh, I'm about to say something serious. I, I just need to stop. See, now it's like in my mind, in my mouth. After Sandy Hook happened, a band that I really love called the Decemberists wrote a song titled 121712, which was the date of that shooting, in which he sings about this paradox of life and death. He's singing to the mothers and fathers who lost their babies. He's singing to the children. He's singing to his own wife, who in the midst of all of this was expecting their first child. This is, I think, the absolute meaning of the Jesus metaphor as it pertains to our lives, which is to be able to hold the beautiful terribleness of the world, to welcome the most unloved aspects of ourself and of the world and let the light stream down on it. This song, and, and it's a morning song, I'm gonna sing it. <laughs> so give me grace. I am not exactly a singer and I'm channeling my niece who has this beautiful angelic voice so give me strength so it goes like this what a gift what a gift you can give me here with my heart so whole while others may be grieving i think of their grieving and oh my boy don't you know you are dear to me you are a breath of life and a light upon the water, a light upon the water. And oh my love, if you only knew how I long for you, how I waste my days wishing you would come around, just to have you around. What a dear, what a sweet little baby. This cannonball in the bosom of your belly, it's just a kick in your belly. And oh my God, what a world you have made here. What a terrible world, what a beautiful world, what a world you have made here. Sometimes, Defiant Hope is a song sung off key. I can't do that song <laughs> as much justice as this band does with their harmonicas and their steady drum kick that plays like a heartbeat in the background. But to convey the gravity of this moment, I confess I don't have all the answers. I don't think any of us do, but together we know a lot. I only have suggestions with for how to live with the wounds a little more heroically. And that's our soul work. Our soul work is to allow for mourning while holding on to a sliver of hope that our grief might just break open into something good. Before getting further into this context of defiant hope, I'd like to give you a definition of soul. What does it mean to do soul work? and sit with it and just see how it resonates. It comes from two folks, Michael Mead and again, Shelley Takluk, who conceive of the soul as the part of us that descends into the depths, the darkness, the earth, the shadows, and that sort of general messiness of life. I think I skipped that slide. The soul, she says, 
is another kind of body, a subtle body that partakes of both spirituality and physicality. Soul is the connecting principle of life, the both and factor, the unifying third between any opposing forces. It is needed to heal the divisions and make the world whole again. Soul would have us incarnate fully and would help us to grow deep roots that allow the spirit of our life to branch out. It thrives on diversity and multiplicity and allows us to become increasingly conscious of what it means to be part of the human experience. Our soul work is also the work of the body. We are meant to be here. We are meant to have a body and to show up and act in the world. Part of this time, I'll offer um, examples of defiant hope to give us something, something small even, just to hold on to. Living examples of defiant hope exist right here in this room. In any way that matters, hope usually emerges out of hopelessness, as I said, two sides of the same coin. If any of us in this room have ever been through something, we're human, we have, a heartache, a brush with mortality, a loss, abuse, and you've made it to the other side, then you know what hope is. Rumi wrote, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Some people succumb to their wounds. They don't have to die to succumb to their wounds. Suicides are on the rise, however, and especially among young people. But there are more people than not who don't give in to hopelessness. However small that sliver of light is, if you are here, you've allowed it in. The whole poem by Rumi is so beautiful. We typically just know that one line and Leonard Cohen sang about it. The, I, don't, I don't remember the tune to that song, but <laughs> the light is, the crack is the place where the light gets in. But the whole poem says, I said, what about my eyes? He said, keep them on the road. I said, what about my passion? He said, keep it burning. I said, what about my heart? He said, tell me what you hold inside of it. I said, pain and sorrow. He said, stay with it. The wound is the place where the light enters you. We cannot know the light if we don't also acknowledge the place where it hurts. This is also a story of defiant hope. Gosh, I'm depressing today. On June 17th in 2015, yet another shooting, a young white man was welcomed into an all-black church in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat with them for a little while and participated in a Bible study, talked with them, and then towards the end, he opened fire. He killed nine of the 13 people present and then trained the gun on himself only to learn he was out of ammo. It was racially motivated, he was clear about that. And he was committed by a very misguided young man who believed in the wrong teachings. That's not the hopeful part. It's extremely tragic. And every single member of the Emmanuel Church community had the right to wish this young man dead or at least serious harm. But they did something so defiant, and we didn't hear very much about this, so incredibly counter to our culture that we should, all, we should model all of our systems of justice after these people. 
during the shooter's first court appearance, the family members of the people who were slain showed up. While this young man sat there with his head low and unable to make eye contact, several of the family members spoke. This is from Nadine Collier, the daughter of victim Ethel Lance. She said, I forgive you. You took away something so precious from me, I will never get to talk to her or hold her again. But I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. And then Wanda Simmons, the granddaughter of Daniel Simmons, said, My grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate. This is proof. Everyone is here pleading for your soul. It's proof that they lived with love. And their legacies will choose love. So hate won't win. I just want to thank the court for making sure that hate won't win. And then finally, this is not even all of them, y'all. Dozens of people showed up and spoke these kinds of truths. Sister uh, of a victim, DePayne Middleton, doctor, said, that was my sister, and I'd like to thank you on behalf, I'd like to thank you on behalf of my family for not allowing hate to win. For me, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I'm angry. But one thing that DePayne always enjoyed in our family is that she taught me we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> these are just three examples of the many who showed up, but these people with every right to turn to hate and anger chose mercy. They chose this love that is bigger than any one of them. And they showed up together and more than any one person could carry. And as I said, definitely more than I think I'm capable of. Maybe together we can do it. Sometimes defiant hope comes in the form of a radical act of mercy. I wonder if we can just sit with how radical that was for them to show up and say, I forgive you. We all heard about the shooting, but how many of us heard about that? Yeah, one person. That needed to be two, three, okay, more, more. That needed to be headline news. Mercy was given. I don't know what Dylan Ruth, the shooter, is grappling with in his soul. I can only imagine that he doesn't think himself worthy of forgiveness or love. You can't commit an act like that and believe you are lovable. But I can imagine that his deepest pain might have been trying to let the love in that the folks of Emmanuel AME offered him that day. That can break you open, just allowing yourself to be loved. When we hope against the odds, something else happens. Joanna Macy says that we experience the emergence of a wider self that powerfully enhances our ability to contribute to the world. Suffering does that. It allows us to become more empathetic to the suffering of others and ultimately makes us more human. I've shared in here before that um, my oldest son, I was just talking to Mark about him, asked me one day, Mommy, what is the human element? <laughs> and that is his question that guided my dissertation. What is the human element? Are we capable of more 
than we think we are? Can we choose radical love? To be honest, that question is getting harder for me to answer because by all accounts, the human condition seems bent on destroying itself. We are terrible and we are so beautiful. We are so capable of so much. I, I wish I could just prop him up. <laughs> He's just this beautiful soul, this 13-year-old boy who asks these questions. He was 11 when he asked this question. This tells you how long I've been working on my dissertation, too. Um, <laughs> but what is the human element? Lately, I'm thinking that the human element has something to do with learning how to grieve. Because if we can touch the depths of our grief, the depths of our hopelessness, we can also touch the strength of our hope and our love. And this season, as I said, is in some sense about holding these tensions. Carl Jung would say that our wholeness rests in being able to hold the tension of opposites, holding grief with love, holding joy with pain. Perhaps right now, these opposites feel like this much farther apart, right? And so you, know, you can imagine the folks who would carry the water on their shoulder with the poles, right? One side gets out of balance. You're tilted over and you lose your water. But that's the tension of opposites, is trying to hold both in steady balance with one another. Here's another story about defiant hope. There is a person in my life, someone really dear to me, who has really deep wounds. And some of those wounds came at the hands of intensely harmful religious teachings in which she came to believe that she was inherently bad, that the human condition was everything awful inside of her and that she needed to repent for that. For this and other reasons, she has every reason to be strung out, to be a statistic, to be curled up in some corner of a room in despair. But she keeps choosing life. Every day she gets up and she says, no matter how hard it is today, I'm gonna choose this. And this week she got a puppy, which is a sign of an enlarging self because it finds something for her to care for outside of the self. If any of you have had or have experienced an emotional support animal, they say that 86% of the people with emotional support animals experience a reduction in depression and anxiety. Having something, and, and like dogs, come on, unconditional love, God spelled backwards, like, <laughs> there's something to that. Um, it's, it's choosing life. It's choosing to care for something outside of yourself. And that is defiant hope. Sometimes it is in the form of a puppy. It's true that we need redemption. I am not saying we are bad. <laughs> but it is true that the way, well, the way that Western Christianity usually peddles redemption around this time of year is around repent, be born again, die to have new life. What we need to recover is our inherent goodness, to remember that. We need to know that we are where the light gets in, not where it goes out. I was reminded of a verse attributed to Jesus as he's being stoned by other Jews who insist while they're hurling their rocks at him, we're not stoning you for anything good you did, but for what you said, this blasphemy of calling yourself God. Jesus replies, again, while having stones thrown at him, 
I'm only quoting your scriptures. And God says, I tell you, you are God's. First of all, there are parts of the Jesus story that are so, that read so nonchalantly. Like, people are throwing stones at you, and you go, y'all, I'm telling you, you're God. So it's like Jesus is just checking out his nails and going, you know, it just reads so like, he's being stoned, and he just turns around and says, you're God's. And they keep throwing stones at him. And he keeps saying, but you are God's. Second of all, why is it so hard for us to believe that we are good? They don't believe him. If we say we are God's, what that means is we are also good. That we have something inherently good in us. He reminded these guys, these stone throwers, I tell you, you are God's, he says. You are good. They're so fearful of it that they project their kind of fear all over Jesus by harming him. We, would know, we know that he dies for this later, for believing in love against all odds. I think our greatest work is to recover that part of us, this part of us that is good, and live in such a way that we act on it every single day in small and large ways. This is part of what it means to live from the true self. And recovering it always entails some form of loss. So death is appropriate. And what I mean is a metaphorical death. We must lose something in order to gain something. We must have hopelessness in order to have hope. This is, to me, the greatest metaphor of this season. Again, Jung calls it this holding the tension of opposites. My favorite piece of the Jesus story is that just before he was executed, Jesus receives a kiss from Judas, his betrayer. He doesn't say, go away from me, you jerk. He calls him friend. He's, he calls him friend. Metaphorically, this is Jesus accepting the shadow aspect of himself saying, this too could be me, I could be Judas, and greeting it with love. If integration is instantaneous, like it happens in a moment, it happened here with a kiss, <laughs> right? Jesus says, I love you. He says, come here, boo. Okay, I love you, right? <laughs> and then he goes, and he goes to his execution. And the reason he can die to the old self is because he's integrated this aspect of himself, this shadow aspect. I've come to believe that being born again is not a one-time thing, but a thing that we do over and over and over again. We peel back the layers, all the unaccepted pieces of ourselves, and we keep inviting them in, and we call them friend. This is what it means to be born again all the time. What unlovable parts of the self are you learning to love? Sometimes, defiant hope is a kiss. I know that part of Bill's goal today was to talk about projection and transference as two psychological defense mechanisms that we do to, to, that because we can't handle unbearable emotions. And when we can't handle unbearable emotions, we tend to project them outward. We put them on others. I'm sure Bill will have something really good and wise to say about all this when he returns. But suffice to say that we have, we have other choices. We can choose something different. 
Some of this I'm going to paraphrase for, again from Joanna Macy. She wrote a book called Active Hope. If you are not familiar with her, she's a, she's a Buddhist who is, oh, she's 90, I think? Anyway, is this, and still writing in this capacity, it's how to hold on to hope. I, well, I think one subtitle of her book is when, when we're going to hell in a handbasket, like how to do it anyway. <laughs> so whatever situation we face, we, we have choices. We can choose our response. When life feels demanding, when situations feel overwhelming, it's hard to believe that our small actions count for very much, that we can make a very big difference. But the degree to which we think about hope, the degree to which we believe they count, begins to shape all of these sort of rippling circles going outward. It also begins to shape, if you will, the ethos of what we're contributing to. She has two different meanings for hope. One is hopefulness, in which our preferred outcomes seem likely to happen. So I'm hopeful that the Astros will go to the World Series again. <laughs> but if I require the assurance of this hope to be fulfilled, to even attend a regular season game, I've stopped before I get started, right? If I, and that's called being attached to an outcome. If I'm attached to an outcome, I won't ever get started. But if I allow hopeful to kind of remain a little bit loose, I might actually get started on the path. I might go to a few games. I might, well, I actually have season tickets. Um, <laughs> but I'm sharing them with four other people, so I only have, what, 20, I think? I don't know. But the point is, if I think that that has to be the outcome, I won't ever show up. The second definition of hope is about desire. This is knowing and naming what kind of world we want to live in. So I desire a world where the Astros are always world champions. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I have to, you have to hold the light with the heavy, right? Like baseball is my love language. <laughs> um, but if we are passive about our desire, if we wait for things to happen to us, it won't happen. If we are active about our desire, I'm gonna buy some tickets, I'm gonna to go to the games, I'm gonna, who, who was an Astros fan in 2012? Well, they, you know, a couple years in a row, they lost like over 100 games. Now look, that's active hope. If you went in 2012, you are actively hoping <laughs> for last year's outcome, right? If we're active about our hope, we become participants in bringing about what we want to see in the world even if it doesn't happen in our lifetimes. And I bet much of it won't. There are so many people who came before us who made today possible. I, 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 this never gets old to me, but in 1969, the Lovings sued the state of Virginia to be able to marry one another, a black woman and a white man. If they had not, they were just simple country folk who lived on a farm who wanted to get married and the state made it impossible for them. And they went to jail for it. They were arrested in their homes in the night, in their home in the night. And they fought it. And I got to marry the person I love most in the universe because of them. So if not for them, there is no me. There is no beautiful boy asking, what is the human element? So hope is something that we do rather than have. 
It entails that we take a clear view of what is, then we identify what we'd like to see. Yes, it can be as simple and silly as an Astros game, but it can also be, I want to live in a world where people are free to be themselves. What am I going to do to make sure that I'm contributing to that hope? So I start to take steps in that direction. How do I live in a way that others can be free? That goes back to the meditation question. How can I live in a way that others can be free? Here's the paradox, though. Defiant hope, or what Joanna Macy has called active hope, it doesn't require optimism. That's a tough one to think of. But hope does not demand optimism. It only demands that we do something. It only demands that we act on what it is that we want to see in the world, that we act in spite of the fact that the house is burning down around us. I want to close with um, poetry. This is, poetry is part of my spiritual practice. It is something I do every day. And part of the reason I love poetry so much is because it allows us to sit with these big questions without having to come up with the answers. There's more silence in poetry than there is filled up space. And you can, also just the way, like the sexiness of grammar in some way, poetry pauses in the middle of a sentence to go to the next line and it forces you to stop as you're reading it. There's um, a poem or, or a writer and poet that I like a lot. Has anyone read Clint Smith? How the word is passed. You've read it? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, he's brilliant. He's a writer who, he's from New Orleans, but he, after Katrina, um, was one of the New Orleanians whose family settled here. He went to the school where my husband now works, but they weren't there at the same time. And he wrote this book called How the Word is Passed, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it. It is such a good narrative of how to how understanding our true history helps us to heal. And then just recently, he released this book of poetry called Above Ground. And in this book of poetry, which I'm not complete with, he wrestles with our legacy of enslavement and brutality. And it's dedicated to his kids, for whom he's dreaming of a better world. He's hoping for something more. The epitaph um, says his is, what does his son say? His son says, um, I, well, I, the one I remember is his daughter. His daughter says, when I grow up, I want to be the son. That's the epitaph. So it's dedicated to his kids. In one poem in this book, he writes, sometimes the moral arc of the universe does not bend in a direction that comforts us. Please, dear reader, do not say that I am hopeless. I believe there is a better future. I believe there's a better future to fight for. I simply accept the possibility that I may not live to see it. In this little line, he talks about the intergenerational aspect of hope, that we plant seeds. I told the story of Howard Thurman coming upon an elder in his community planting seeds, planting trees he would never see the fruit but he's planting them for future generations because his rationale is, I've eaten from trees that I didn't plant my whole life. 
This poem that I'll close with is called All at Once. It's about holding the tension of opposites, this beautiful, terrible world. This to me is the foundation of defiant hope. It goes, the redwoods are on fire in California. A flood submerges a neighborhood that sat quiet on the coast for three centuries. A child takes their first steps and tumbles into a father's arms. Two people in New Orleans fall in love under an oak tree whose branches bend like sorrow. A forest of seeds are planted in new soil. A glacier melts in the ocean and the sea climbs closer to the land. A man comes home from war and holds his son for the first time. A man is killed by a drone that thinks his jug of water is a bomb. Your best friend relapses and isn't picking up the phone. Your son's teacher calls to say he stood up for someone else in class today. A country below the equator ends a 20-year civil war. A soldier across the Atlantic fires the shot that begins another. The scientists find a vaccine that will save millions of people's lives. Your mother's cancer has returned, and the doctors say there's nothing they can do. There's a funeral procession in the morning and a wedding in the afternoon. The river that gives us water to drink is the same one that might wash us away. Life is this, and life is that. You are this, and you are that. We can be hopelessly hopeful. We can sort of be stupid, stupidly courageous enough to sing a song in front of a group of people when we can't sing that well. Sometimes hope is a radical act of mercy. Sometimes it's a kiss. Sometimes it's a poem. And if you understand nothing else about today, just know that you have a choice. You have a choice to choose to drink from the water or to allow it to wash you away. I hope that no matter where you go this week, you remember that you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thanks for being here. <laughs>